And thanks for joining us online again at MCC. I'm so glad you're joining us this morning. Uh, we are in the last week of our series on the book of Philemon. And don't worry if this is your first Sunday and you, you don't even know where the book of Philemon is, um, don't worry. Uh, what we're going to talk about today doesn't require you to have heard about the last three weeks. But before we get into the last week of Philemon, um, I just want to take a moment and say thank you to Jason. This last week, if you joined us online, Jason spoke and uh, he, he shared with, him, with us some really painful, difficult questions and conversations, shared some of his life in some really personal ways. And uh, I'm just so grateful uh, when we have people in our church like Jason who are willing to be honest and vulnerable and uh, and share the hard things. Because there's a lot of things about this life that are, that are hard and following Jesus isn't always easy. In fact, most of the time it's, it's a hard thing to do. And um, I just, I appreciate his honesty and his transparency. If you didn't hear it last week, you can go on our website, mymcc.cc, and you can look at the teaching. You can find his message last week. Um, if you know Jason, if you've got contact with him, shoot him an email, shoot him a Facebook message or Instagram, and just tell him thanks for, for his vulnerability and for his honesty and for challenging us to think about some really difficult things last week. Um, this week, we're, we're going to talk about some difficult things. We're going to talk about a, a difficult thing, and that is um, one of the central tensions around the book of Philemon. If you haven't been here, quick recap. The book of Philemon is named after the person the letter is sent to. A man named Philemon, a wealthy man, um, lives in Colossae. His, um, he is wealthy in ancient Near Eastern culture, which means that he has what some translations call slaves, some call servants, some call bond servants. We might call an indentured servant or a slave or a servant. And uh, one of those is a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus runs away from his responsibility. He runs away from his um, uh, bondage, maybe, or he's running away from a debt that he owes that, on that Philemon paid off. But whatever the case, he runs away, um, breaks the, the, the common law of the, the, the nation, and finds himself in some way that we don't know connected to Paul. And he hears the gospel in a way that um, we assume he never heard from Philemon, who's a follower of Jesus, and he gives his life to Jesus, and Paul sends him back to Philemon for reconciliation, for restoration, to challenge Philemon's faith, but also to challenge Onesimus' faith, to trust God. And so he carries the letter back to Philemon that calls Philemon out of love, not out of obligation, not out of requirement, not out of cultural norms. In fact, very contrasting cultural norms, to see Onesimus as a brother, one of the central phrases is no longer as a slave, but even more as a brother, and to release him from his bondage or from his debt. And so one of the central question tensions that we have to discuss when we look at the book of Philemon is the question of the Bible and slavery. But what does this book here have to say about slavery. Just for a moment, when you think about slavery and you think about the Bible, what, what is it that you think this book says about slavery? 
I think that if you were to ask someone outside of the church, someone unfamiliar with this text, someone who's not a follower of Jesus, um, they would have, at best, a tenuous answer. They, they would have a, a, an uncomfortable answer that they're not quite sure that the Bible isn't pro-slavery, that they've heard stories, especially in America over the last couple hundred years, about how this book has been used by politicians, by um by followers of Jesus, by political leaders to advocate for the oppression of people. For some outside of the church, it is one of the great problems they have with even entertaining the God of this book is their perception of what the Bible says about slavery. And, and today you, you might be one of those people, like you might be all Jesus, like I'm all in on Jesus. The gospels, give me the four gospels. I'm not even really sure what I want to do with Paul because sometimes he has things to say, but give me Jesus. But the rest of this book, I'm not real sure how comfortable I am about the rest of this book. And one of those tensions may be around the conversation around slavery in the Bible. And you may come to this book with the perception with the belief that um, the God of this Bible is a God who not only permitted, but required some to be enslaved, to be oppressed. And that doesn't seem to fit well with a Jesus who comes, who says he's, he's come to set the captives free. What, is, what do we do with this? Have you ever said or heard someone say this, um, say a phrase like this, say, uh, say, I can't believe that someone like that would do that. Right? Like, like maybe, um, I can't believe someone who claims to believe this would vote that way. Right? <laughs> Have you heard that in the last couple of years? I can't believe that anybody who who claims to be this type of person would support this type of candidate. Or maybe totally different sphere. I can't believe that they would ever hire that person. Right? What we're saying, we're, we're actually telling on ourselves. Because what we're saying is that when we look at the equation in front of us, what this person claims to believe, what this person claims to teach, the posture, the attitude, all the things that you know about this person, that that equation all added up could never equal the result you see. What we're telling on ourselves is that there's something about the equation that we don't understand. Here's what I mean. If you look at someone and you look at the summation of their life and their teaching and their opinions and the way they live their life, and you say, the answer to their life is four. But they keep saying, no, no, the answer is five, right? You may look at it and go, no, one plus one plus two is four. And they go, no, 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 the answer is five. I can't believe that you would come up with five. There's only four over here. How would you get five out of four? What we're telling on ourselves is that when we say that, we're acknowledging that there's something about their equation that we don't understand. 
that we've missed, that we haven't yet learned. Here's, let's go back to our illustration. I can't believe they would hire someone like that. Right? Been there? Interviewed for a job? Saw a friend interview for a job? Thought they are the perfect candidate. Everything written out. They are all the ports that they want. This is the only option is this person. And then you see here that they hired someone totally different. And you look at that person and go, there's no way that person fits. And then you learn one little detail that you didn't know before. The person they hired is the nephew of the owner. It changes the whole equation. Now you look and you see five and it makes sense why they hired Billy Bob for the job. When we say phrases like, I can't believe that someone like that would do that, what we are saying is that there's something about that person that we don't understand, maybe good or maybe bad, that if we knew all the elements together, we like, here's a really popular phrase, and sometimes this occurs, we like blaming it on cognitive dissonance. We like saying, that person doesn't see the contradiction in their opinions, that they say this and they say this and then they do this. But it's kind of a really arrogant way of talking down about people. Because more than likely, whether we agree or not, we're not seeing the full picture of what's going on in their life. Some element in our story of who they are is missing. And the exact same thing happens when we come to Scripture and we say, I love Jesus and I'm all for Jesus. And he is, he is for the oppressed and the overlooked and the unwanted and the rejected. And he is the one who sets the captives free and he sees the people that nobody else sees. And he advocates for them and he submits and he serves and he washes people's feet. And then I look at, at the God of the Old Testament or, or the writings of Paul and they can't be the same. They can't be the same. They, that Jesus can't be that God, and what we're, what we're more than likely acknowledging is that there's something about Jesus or there's something about the rest of this book that we don't fully understand. When we look at this book and we look at the character and the story of Jesus, and they seem to be disconnected, when there seems to be a cognitive dissonance, between Jesus and the rest of the teaching of this book, it should make us curious. We should be curious long before we're critical. What is it that I'm missing? What is it that I'm not seeing? Because this Jesus, he, he, he celebrates and glorifies the Father, the, the one of the, the Old Testament. He, he, he quotes and, and leans on the scriptures of the Old Testament. What is it about Jesus or this, this God that, I, that I'm missing, that the equation doesn't make sense for me? Church, we would be um, so much further along in our maturity, in our following Jesus, in our Christ-likeness, if we spent far more time being curious and less time being critical. 
we can have a conversation about a time that there is to be critical and that's totally, but totally different conversation. But that is a minority. As follows Jesus, when we see people and, and they, they proclaim Jesus and they teach Jesus and yet we look at their lives and something doesn't look like we think it should look, we should be curious. Now, maybe what's missing is something good, or maybe something that's missing is something bad, but we should be curious. We should ask questions. We should have conversations. When we, when we look at this text and we come across something that Paul says, or, or Peter says, or the Old Testament says, and, and we go, that doesn't fit with the Jesus I know. We should be curious. What is it that I'm missing? In fact, when it comes to the conversation of slavery, we can find a, a couple verses, we can pull them out of context, and we can, we, can, we can see those verses, and we can say, look, they stand opposed to the Jesus who came to set captives free. We can look at, um, let me just show you one. We can look at 1 Peter, right? Um, 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 18. Verse 18, we, we could look at that and some translate it servant. That's what my translation has, servants. Some translate it slaves. But it says this, be submissive to your master with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And we can look at Peter's words there and go, that doesn't seem to fit with the Jesus that I no, how, how does that fit into the equation? How does that fit in the equation? We could look at our American history, and we could look at the South, and we could look at religious movements that came out of the South that used this book to advocate for the oppression of people, that advocated for, 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 for one of the worst forms of slavery human history has ever seen, a slavery, type of slavery we call chattel slavery, where people are owned as possessions, as animals. And we could go, how, how could this book, this book can't fit with that Jesus because I've seen people use this book to abuse and manipulate and destroy and remove, rob the dignity from people. But here's the part of the equation that I want to ask you to consider. How is it, how is it that um, pastors walk the streets of the South with this book shoulder and shoulder with Martin Luther King Jr.? How, how, how is it, how is it that there were people in the north during the Civil War, there were pastors, that by, by some estimates, there were more churches and more followers of Jesus in the north than there were in the south, right? How as a predominantly religious, predominantly Christian north read this book and say this book absolutely stands opposed to the institution of slavery? What is it that we're missing? What is it we're missing about Martin Luther King Jr.'s view of this book? It was this book, and predominantly, here's the crazy thing, here's the crazy thing. If you listen to the summation of Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons, 
Because I'm sure you know this, he, he was an active reverend before he was a civil rights movement leader, and he still considered him, himself primarily a pastor shepherding his people. Most of his sermons are out of the Old Testament. What is it that we're missing that we look at this book and think there's a tension about slavery and about oppression, and yet Martin Luther King Jr., the greatest civil rights leader that our nation has ever seen, he read this book and he said, this is a God who is absolutely opposed to the oppression of any people for any reason. He is a God of liberty and freedom. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're missing? That when you look at abolitionist movements throughout history and even still today, because there's still slavery in almost every country in the world today, what are we missing that when we look at this book, we have a tension and we have a wrestling and think that this might be a God who advocates for slavery, and yet almost every single abolitionist movement has been founded on this book and led by people of this book, followers of Jesus, people who pour over this book and believe that they have a call of God to advocate for the oppressed and the overlooked, for the taken for granted, for those who've been robbed of their dignity. What is it that we're missing? What is it we're, that we're missing? when it was people like William Wilberforce who read this book and said slavery cannot exist in this world. What is it about this that we're missing about this book that Charles Spurgeon nicknamed the Prince of Preachers, a British preacher, dynamic and powerful preacher. He, he said this, he said that slavery is the foulest blot on human history. What is it that John Wesley great evangelist, he, he said this of slavery, he said that slavery is the sum of all villainies. Of all the evil of this world, it is summed up in the act of slavery. What is it that we're missing? That these are men and women who poured over this book and what they saw was a God who advocated for freedom for the oppressed. Charles Finney, Harriet Beecher Stowe, great abolitionists and advocates against slavery, men and women of this book. In fact, we are part of a movement called the Stone Campbell Movement, a Christian church or non-denominational Christian church, and it began in Kentucky in a thing called the Cambridge Revival um, in the Second Great Awakening. It was a great, the largest camp meeting and um, all the, it sounds like a bad, um, uh, bad joke. It was organized by a Methodist pastor, a Presbyterian pastor, and a Baptist pastor. They all got together for camp, and then this revival thing broke out. And one of the first writings, uh, one of the early writings to come out of that was a book called this. Um, it was called A Condensed, a Condensed Anti-Slavery Biblical Argument. One of the first things to come out of a great awakening, out of a revival, was a people who were so consumed with this book that they said this institution of slavery in the world cannot exist anymore. What is it that we're missing when we see lives like Harriet Tubman and the whole of the Underground Railroad that was completely illegal in the South and in the North that was almost exclusively followers of Jesus? who poured over this book and were willing to rebel against the institution and against the laws 
for the freedom of men and women enslaved. What caused them to see something we're not seeing, to see this as a book that called us to end oppression of others? In fact, I would contend with you that um, for much of Christian history, those who have stood in support of slavery have actually recognized the absolute absurd contradiction that slavery is to this book. In fact, in the South, um, in, in, uh, uh, during the time of slavery, they were so aware in one of the great failures and great embarrassments and one of the great um, laments of the church, missionaries went to the Caribbean and they recognized that if they gave slaves this book, that slaves would recognize that this is a, a God who advocates for the oppressed, who wants freedom for the slaves, for the captives, for the overlooked, that they would recognize that. And so they began to publish themselves. A group of missionaries began to redact from Scripture anything that supported the oppression, the freedom of the oppressed. And instead, they began to hand out all throughout the Caribbean and the South this book that you can still find copies of today. It was called this. It was called Select Parts of the Holy Bible for the Use of the Negro Slave. And it was the authorized version of Scripture to be handed out to those who were enslaved because they knew something that many of us miss, that if they saw this whole book, they would hear the story of a God who was for the overlooked and the oppressed, a God who stood against the dignity-robbing institution of slavery in any form. What is it? What is it that we don't see? Now, I don't have time today to go through a whole expanse. I mean, people have written volumes on this. You can find on Amazon books some really great books. You can find at bookstores some really great books that wrestle with and have conversations around slavery and Scripture. And that's, that's, that's a great thing to do. And I want to encourage you to be curious. So I don't want to answer all the questions today. Curious, not critical. But today, I just in, in the couple minutes we have left, I, I want to ask you, look at the story of Philemon. What do you see Paul advocating for in the story of Philemon? Let me just read you a little section again. We've read it before. But hear this. Listen to what he says. This is the center of the, the, the book is only 25 verses, right? And this is nine of them. It says this, therefore, though I have confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, right? He's saying, I know that if I demanded it of you, it would be in line with the heart of Jesus. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I'm such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment, whom formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel, but without your consent... I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. Look at this. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved 
brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord, a beloved brother. Look at this one situation, one circumstance, and ask the question, what is Paul advocating for? The support of the institution of slavery or for freedom for the slave? Paul doesn't give any justification to Philemon for why he should set him free, except it's in line with the heart of Jesus, and he should do it as an act of love for Jesus and his brother in Onesimus. Look, look. I think sometimes, sometimes we um, over uh, blow the kind of impact that Paul had in ancient Near East. There have been some who've been critical and said, why didn't Paul advocate for the freedom of all slaves? Why didn't he just say every slave should go free? Because we have this view of Paul as a monumental hero of the first century. That he was this juggernaut of political power and influence, and he wasn't. He wasn't. He was, he was a convict. He was a felon in and out of prison. He, he was this itinerant preacher who w- was a blue-collar worker and would build tents on occasion and, and, and traveled around seemingly with no family. And when, when he'd set up these churches, they weren't these mega churches. They were often 15, 20, 30, maybe 40 people in a house that got together in a town of Tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. But what we see in Paul is that where he had influence, he lived a subversive life. Paul knew Onesimus and he knew Philemon. And having a relationship with them, he advocated for them for a sacrificial, painful, unpleasant and very difficult life decision. He challenged Onesimus to have the faith to walk with the letter back to his oppressor. He challenged Philemon to live in a way that was contrary to all of society. In fact, um, uh, who was it? I, I think it was Aristotle. Yeah, it was Aristotle. Was quoted as saying in one of his writings that, um, that slavery was the normal Um, nature of the human. That slavery was a normal and necessary institution. And and Paul is calling Philemon, a man he knows, to live a life that is subversive and different. Paul used the leverage and the relationships he had to bring freedom and life to those he came in contact with. Paul could have made billboards and taken out radio ads, but would have his set... Would it have changed the heart of Philemon? Probably not. Would it have brought Onesimus to freedom? Probably not. But in the spheres and places and amongst the people that he had influence in, Paul lived such a subversive lifestyle and he called those around him to live a a lifestyle that was subversive to the cultural norms in a way that brought freedom and liberty to those around them. Paul challenged Philemon to live in in a way that um, many would have considered irresponsible. Think about that first day, right? Philemon gets the letter, he reads the letter, he sets Onesimus free. Can you imagine that next day when Onesimus and Philemon are walking to breakfast together side by side? They sit down at a table together and they eat 
together, not Onesimus serving Philemon. Can you imagine the drama in Colossae? <coughs> the chaos. What's going on? What's go Philemon has lost his mind. Can you imagine the, the fear and, and the worry about the institutional chaos that's going to occur if all these slaves know that they can find freedom in Jesus? And, and his friends, who were even followers of Jesus, would have come to him and would have said, Philemon, Philemon, Philemon. This is irresponsible. What's Onesimus going to do? You, you, you're setting him free, but you're setting him free to starve on the streets, man. You, you're not loving Onesimus? Onesimus has a place to sleep, and he's got food because he's your slave, and now you're just booting him out. And Think of all the impact. And Philemon says, How could I ever own a man who's my brother? Imagine the ripples that happened in Colossae when one man was obedient to the call of Christ to love as he has loved, to love recklessly. In fact, that's exactly the call that we have in John. John 13 records the words of Jesus, and he says this, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, but more than that, more than that, listen, this, this is what's really profound and life-changing. But more than that, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Not just that you love when it's convenient. Not just that you love the way you want to be loved. Someone called this the platinum rule, right? The, the golden rule is to, to treat others as you would want to be treated. Some called this the platinum rule, to, to treat others as Christ has treated you. And he says this, verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Man, the city of Colossae would have known. The city of Colossae would have known that there was something different about Philemon and Onesimus and the faith that they claimed. They would have known that there was something different about this itinerant preacher in Jesus, this, this Jew who wandered around and then seemed to have some uh, rumor of how his life ended or didn't end. They would have known that there was something different about these people. They would have known that there was something different about a man who, who, who so loved his God that he demonstrated the same kind of love that God showed him to, to a person that the rest of society considered rightfully enslaved. The chatter, the rumors conversation as Philemon one by one went to his slaves and says, because Christ has loved me, so I love you. You may go. Because Christ has loved me, so I love you. You may go. Because Christ has loved me, so I love you. You may go. And the recklessness that it would have seemed. Here's my question to you. What are the spheres of influence that Jesus has invited you into? Where are the places like Paul that you can speak into the lives of people into a community and say, you guys, out of love for Jesus, we have to do something better. We have to love recklessly. Where is it in your life that you could be like Philemon 
and you could respond to Jesus in an act of love to brothers and sisters that seems reckless even to other believers in a way that would shine a light of his goodness and grace and mercy on your life. Today, our challenge is very real. The struggles in this world are difficult. What it means to follow Jesus is sometimes hard and unsure, but I believe this, that we will never fail if we err on the edge of loving too much, of loving too recklessly, of loving with too much fervor, of loving the unlovable and the unwanted and the rejected. Because you see, this is exactly what Christ has done for us. You remember he says, John 13, to, to love as I've loved you. He told us how he loved earlier in John. You know the verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. A world that largely rejects him. A world that through human history has largely not wanted him. Even those he loved so desperately that he recklessly and sacrificially gave himself up. Church, what would it look like if we as followers of Jesus everywhere we live loved the way Philemon was called to love Onesimus in a subversive, culture-changing kind of way? What is it for you? Where has God given you influence? And who has he called you to love? that others say are undeserving. If we could be a church of Philemon's, the world would be changed forever. Let's pray together. Lord, there are a lot of things that you say in your word that are difficult that are hard to process, that are hard to understand. There are things we have to sort out in this life, decisions we have to make that are strenuous, and there are lines we struggle. Is this the way that we love? Is this the way we show compassion? Is this where justice comes in? There, there are all these things that we wrestle with. And Lord, I just pray that today that you would, that you would fill us again with your Spirit in a way that we would understand your heart and your eyes, the way you see things, that we would be a people of compassion and grace and mercy and love. Lord, that you'd give us the courage to do the thing that love demands but the world calls reckless so that they might see the kind of reckless love you have for them. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, I'm so glad you guys joined us for MCC Online. Uh, next week, we're going to be back in the building. And so next week, this whole thing is going to look different. We'll be all gathering live together in person online again. And so I hope you'll plan on joining us next week at 11 a.m. Again, here at live.mymcc.cc. And I also hope... That maybe last week there were some questions that Jason brought up. Maybe this week there's some, some, some difficult decisions you have to make. And, and, and I hope that you would reach out so we can pray with you. 
The easiest way to do that is if you're at live.myMCC.cc is just to jump into the chat box. And um, we, we've got some, some team members that are there that would love to talk with you, would love to pray with you. Um, if not, any time throughout the week, you can text the word Monmouth to 97,000, M-O-N mouth to 97000. And one of the responses you can put is connect card and there's a spot for prayer requests. We'd love to be praying with you and praying for you today. Love you guys. So glad you joined us. Hope to see you next week.